heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive them that trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. King Jehoram was one of the wicked kings of Israel. In fact, most of the kings of Israel, the northern kingdom, uh, were wicked to some level or another. Um, he had, uh, was the descendant of Ahab and Jezebel. And in 2 Kings 3, we're not going to read that text. I just want to help you understand a backstory as we get into this idea of warring with wisdom. Uh, what we're going to find out, I'll go ahead and say this. Um, first of all, um, we, we won't get to the notes today except for a verse I'm going to read. Uh, it's for next week. But I wanted you to be able to reference some things. I hope you'll take time this week. I know it's a busy week with holiday, and boy, I hope you have a good one, by the way. I know it's a busy week, but I hope you'll have time to just go over the notes and understand what we want to accomplish. We understand that in this present time, the certainty of deception grows and intensifies. And we want to be wise so that we're not tossed about like a boat in a storm with, that's rudderless, that has no guide. Um, we want to be on guard against deception, but we don't want to live in fear. We want to live in victory, but we don't want to live in arrogance. So it takes a steady hand to hold a full cup, as we have said. And we're going to talk about living uh, in victory for these next two weeks. We're going to talk about, uh, um, how can I say this? We want to next week, we want to talk about shutting the door on demonic activity in our life. But today we want to talk about depending on the Lord to shut the door on demonic activity in our life. I want you to know a very wise person, people have said, the enemy doesn't wait for an invitation, but he seizes opportunities. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that next week. Just because the devil has a chance doesn't mean he's going to take it. After all, he blows it all the time uh, from his perspective. But we also realize that there are some things that open us to difficulty and to unnecessary warfare. And we want to talk about those things. King Jehoram, after his father Ahab died, the king Mesha in Moab, who every year had to give 10,000 sheep and 10,000 rams to Ahab, he says, I'm not going to do this anymore. Ahab's gone. Uh, I'm going to break free from this taxation that I have. And so he makes a covenant with the king of Edom who really was one of Israel's greatest enemies, uh, but not at this moment. And he goes to Judah, the southern kingdom, to make a deal with King Jehoshaphat. Now, King Jehoshaphat is a phenomenal king. He is one of the three greatest kings of Israel, in my opinion, uh, if you don't put Jesus in that mix. Um, he, he, with Josiah and David, are, are absolutely phenomenal. And he says, will you go to war with me against Moab? I'm with the king of Edom, and we've decided that Edom has to be resisted and put down. They had a bad past with Edom. They were going to have a worse future. And um, would you fight with me? And Jehoshaphat said, or yeah, Jehoshaphat said, well, we're brothers, of course I will. Um, you know, it's, and you see that from time to time from the kings of Judah, a desire to bring the nations back and to, and to go back to walking together in the fear of the Lord. But it, it never came to pass. 
And um, he said, yes, we're brothers, uh, so we'll do it. And they go out into pursuit of the army of Moab. Um, they go for seven days and there's no food and no water. And they did what most of us do. We turn to the thing we have faith in. And they called in, Jehoram did, called in his prophets and they prophesied and they prophesied and they prophesied. But Jehoshaphat, who was a godly king, listened to all these prophets and, and said, okay, but is there, a, uh, is there a prophet who has a word from the Lord? And, um, you know, later we would find out uh, that the kings of the north did not always like the prophets that were prophets of the Lord. But they go, the three kings go to the place, they were near the dwelling place of Elisha. You remember Elisha, followed Elijah. I don't mean to talk down to you. I just know that we have new Christians. And Elisha was the successor of Elijah. In fact, the biblical text says, uh, well, you remember Elisha, he's the one that used to wash Elijah's hands, meaning he was his servant or he was his assistant and was also his successor. Now, here's what happened. They go to Elisha, and I don't advocate, I don't use this verse to advocate rudeness. Uh, one thing that the Lord is teaching the church in general right now is that the wrath of man doesn't work the righteousness of God. Um, we are so vitriolic toward those we disagree with, whether it's over theology or methodology or policy or politics. And we somehow think that if we just add, thus saith the Lord, that a snarl on our face is sometimes somehow sanctified, you know, and that God will use it. Uh, we're in a mean place right now, and it has bled over into the church. I'm not advocating for that. I'm not vindicating that. But we see a glimpse into the heart of God through Elisha. The three kings are there, and you would think that when you're visited by three kings, you would be eager to meet them and have this photo op. But Elisha goes out to these men that are used to uh, being treated as kings because they are kings. And Elisha says, oh, you want a prophetic word. Why don't you go to the prophets of your father and mother and see what they say? And loved ones, I'll save it for another time. I won't get into it today. But we're approaching a time like that when the, the prophets, the, uh, not the prophets, yeah, well, the prophets or the voices or the gods of the secular realm are about to be put on the spot. And God is going to show himself mighty and great. He said, why don't you go to the prophets of your um, father or mother, and why don't you serve the, the God you've been serving all these years? And then he says something that shows us what's going on in heaven. He says, in fact, Elisha says, if it were not for the high regard that I have for Jehoshaphat, I would not even walk out here and talk to you. Now that tells us a couple of things. Uh, now, he, he did prophesy, and, and um, it's a story that we'll deal with in some other setting. But what I want you to understand is this is the destiny of three nations coming together, the hearts of three kings coming together, and God performs a miracle, but we find that there's all kinds of things going on behind the scene. You know, um, Elisha basically says, King James says, bring me a minstrel. Or in the Chitty Revised Standard Version, it says, bring the song man, you know. Dig holes, bring the song man, let's have some worship. And in the morning they woke up, there was water everywhere in these holes that they dug. And enough for the men, enough for the animals. But the first thing I think this picture teaches us is um, the 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 high regard that God has for any man or woman, boy or girl, that is trying to serve him. Now Jehoshaphat, he wasn't perfect, but he was a godly king. 
And, and even in moments when we're not sure if we're doing the right thing, God honors us. God loves us. God holds us in high regard. To be the Lord's servant is a very big deal, and we need to understand how much we are loved by heaven because of it. You say, well, there's some people, I'm, I'm not going to honor them. You know, they're hypocrites. Well, even David understood that even though Saul had been abandoned by the Lord, Saul had not been removed from his position. And David said, I will not touch the Lord's anointed. Touch not mine anointed, do my prophets no harm. Not because that gives them impunity or diplomatic immunity, but because he said, when God works, you don't understand all that's going on. You know, one of the, one of the great statements that was prophetically uttered of Jesus when he was on the cross is, was, was spoken by an enemy of Jesus, a man that, as far as I know, was in hell. He said, well, he saved others, but he can't save himself. That was exactly true. Jesus saved others, but he couldn't do it if he was wanting to save himself. Uh, God can use donkeys if he needs to from time to time. We had, a, we had a guy in seminary that whenever a student did their preaching, uh, it irritated us, but it, it got funny, especially after my turn preaching was over. Uh, he'd, he'd walk by you and, and uh, everybody'd say, hey, you did a good job. Everybody was so encouraging because they knew they were coming next. And um, it was a class where each student critiqued you a couple of professors critiqued you, and that was very intimidating. And, um, but he'd walk by, everybody saying, hey, did a good job, did a good job. When he would walk by you, he'd go, hee-haw. That was his way of saying, we're just donkeys. We're just donkeys. God can use anything. Don't let it go to your head. But God honored Jehoshaphat and so much to the point that Elisha said, I'm in tune with heaven and I wouldn't even come out to talk to you except for the regard I have for him. The second thing it tells us is that um, God, when someone is rebelling against him, when someone is working against God, God has the ability to just turn his face and that's what happened to Saul. When you see Saul apparently going mad, it was after God had said, now, this was the same God that anointed him to prophesy. This is the same God that gave him victory to win battles. But now God is withdrawn from him. And Saul goes to Samuel before he dies. He goes to the witch at Endor to bring Samuel back from the uh, netherworld of the dead. And this is his complaint. God will not speak to me. He will not communicate with me. He's turned his back on me. And it took Saul years to begin to understand, if he ever understood it at all, that God doesn't owe us something because of our position or our title or anything else. Prophets were given to remind people of the New Testament message that it's all by grace, it's all by faith, it's all by his mercy, and it's by his love. Now, um, let, me, let me fast forward to another king. This is Hezekiah. By the way, all of the, none of this is in your notes, um, so you may want to write it down, or I'll, I'll try to put it in note form before next week. Um, but I, I, I want to talk about spiritual warfare from a depth and a position that you may have never heard. I don't mean by that, oh, my teaching is so deep. I'm talking about I'm going past methodology. I'm going past the obvious things. We'll cover some of those next week. But I want us to get to the heart of the matter. How do we do spiritual warfare and please a God who can be very close to us and be justified in doing so or totally abandon us and be very justified in doing so. I want to talk about the, 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 the high ground 
at the Battle of Gettysburg over near Devil's Den. Uh, oh, I'm too much detail. There, there was a horrible, horrible place where the Confederates tried to launch an attack from, and it was disaster. It was, and the, the, the commander of that brigade that was there, when he was laying on his bed wounded, he looked at another commander and he said, worse ground, worse ground I've ever seen for a battle. Worse ground ever. And we need to understand that sometimes we want to win battles, but we are waging battles standing in the worst ground possible. We need to understand that even battles that we want to make and ought to make must be waged on the Lord's terms. Now, when we look at kings, there are some that just seem to be all bad. I don't know that there were any that were totally, totally, totally bad. Um, you know, even the, even the ugliest pig's pretty to some pig somewhere. Um, but I think of people like Jeroboam the first. I think of people like Ahab. If there was anything morally good about them, we, we don't find it. Now, Ahab did repent later, not enough to change his ways. But at least he had sorrow to the point that God had mercy on him. And God let him live longer. Some are all bad. Some seem to be all good, where there's almost nothing written about them. Nobody's perfect. I think of Jehoshaphat. I think of Josiah. Both of those men made mistakes, but morally they were upright. They followed the Lord, um, uh, as did Hezekiah for that matter. Uh, so some are all good. Some are good and go to bad. Uh, and I think you see where I'm going. I want us to figure out which DNA we have. Uh, some are good and go to bad. I think of Solomon. Nobody had a greater promise. Nobody had a greater hand dealt to him than Solomon. I mean, Solomon came, uh, had God come to him twice. And one of the times God came, can you imagine what we do with this? What do you want? Just name it. You say, it doesn't take me long. I'd wish for three more wishes. You know, but that's not the way it worked. And the, the incredible wisdom with which God answered opened the door to everything he could have asked for but didn't. Boy, that's wisdom. That's incredible. And we all know that he, you know, had 300 wives. And as one of my junior boy students said, he, he had 300 wives and 700 porcupines. And uh, those, those concubines were more like porcupines than they were wives because they led him astray. His wives and his, and his porcupines led him astray. But it, when, when I'm growing up in Sunday school, it sounds like, oh yeah, he was, he, God gave him all these promises. He had a good couple of weeks, then he blew it. But I want you to know, when you read the life of Solomon, he lived from his youth into his middle age, late middle age. He had decades of service behind him before he made some incredibly stupid moves. Nobody would have figured that he would make the move. Maybe in his youth, you would look for some moves like that. But in walking in wisdom, he gravitated to foolishness. And um, we, we only... We only hope Solomon is in heaven because of some of his later writings. We hope he learned his lesson. When he says vanity, vanity, all is vanities, what we hope is that that's the reflections of old Solomon looking back on his life. Book of Ecclesiastes, he said, I had it all. Wine, women, and song wealth. He said, I had it all, but everything is vanity. And we're hoping that that's his confessional, that the only thing that matters is God in heaven. Then you've got some that are so bad. You, you think, have you ever, oh, don't answer. Have you ever felt by somebody, maybe a, a, a theological rival or a, or a, business rival or a politician where you, you say, well, pastor tells me to pray for him. So I pray for him. Lord, I ask you to send them to hell right now 
you know. What would you do if your bitterest rival or a politician that you had the least respect for showed up, met you at the parking lot after church and said, I didn't have the nerve to come in, but I need to know what to do with Jesus. I need to know what to do with my spiritual life. Can you help me? Uh, would, you, would you feel the compassion of the Lord? You see, Jesus looked on that rich young ruler and realized that he was doing his best to serve God, but he it was all about his works. And Jesus could have said, that's the problem with you people. You think it's by works, but it's not. But the Bible says that Jesus looked at this man in gross error. And it says, and he loved him. Imagine your worst enemy in the parking lot. Can you look at him and love them and then lead them to the knowledge of Jesus? You say, I don't know, pastor. That's a good answer. That's a good answer. Uh, I, I, I hesitate to accept an answer that says, oh, sure, sure. It's not, it's not as easy as you think it is. Or would you say this? Well, here's the best spiritual advice I can give you. Go home and pack light, loose-fitting clothes because hell is hot and it ain't half full. And that's where you're going, you know. Nah, it's tough. It's tough. But you have some that are so bad. And just when you say, oh, God, I wouldn't want to be them. I don't even want to stand by them. I'm afraid God would send so much lightning to kill him. He'd kill me by accident, you know. Manasseh, listen to the description of Manasseh, Hezekiah's son. And boy, I know this is a lot to keep up with. Um, and sometimes a king in the north has the same name as a king in the south. That's where it really gets confusing. Um, but Manasseh, who was the son of Hezekiah, the Bible says he did worse than all the other kings of Israel before him. Take the worst of the, that they had done, and he did more to lead. And you know what else it said? He did worse than the kings of the nations that were there before Israel. God drove all of those ites out for their horrendous sin. And, and you know, it wasn't just God picking on the Moabites and Edomites and all the other ites. They had run through the incredible mercy of God over hundreds, if not thousands of years. And God finally judged them and brought Israel into the land. And, and, and Israel didn't get the land because they were better. Israel got the land because those folks were judged and God was wanting to bless Israel. But you think of all that those kings did, the child sacrifice, the, the, the incredible evil. And it says that um, Manasseh did worse than they did. This guy's bad. He's the kind of guy, uh, he'd be on the bottom of the best baseball players ever. He'd be on the bottom of the list of best presidents ever. He'd be on the bottom of the list of best mayors ever. He, he'd be, uh, he's down on everybody's bottom. But at the end of his life, he repents. God bring, starts bringing judgment against him. He's even taken into exile for a while, but he is released. And listen to what he does. He repents. People like Manasseh are not supposed to repent. It ruins our theology. It ruins our sermons on hell. He repented and he tried to tell Israel, I have led you the wrong path. I have taken you down the wrong road. But the seeds he sowed had burrowed down so deep. The people, after following him for years and years, decades literally, a couple of generations, the seed of what he had done was so deep they did not listen to him. They turned him away. Now they would listen, some would listen later, uh, but, but not many. And then there are some, what we call us. The Bible, because of space limitations, we, you know, every time you look at a list, 
you'll find evil king, good king, evil king, good king, evil king, good king. And they were, and all the evil kings, maybe it doesn't say it about a, a, a two or three, but all the evil kings did bad, did evil in the sight of the Lord. All the good kings did right in the sight of the Lord. Some of them were on steroids for doing right. Josiah, Hezekiah, David. Um, it's, it's said of three men in scripture, three of the kings, that there was not another king like him. Now, does that mean they were all tied? No, there was one of them that was seeking after God's heart. There was one of them that sought the Lord and turned to him with all of his heart. Nobody sought the Lord like he did. There was another one that restored the ways of the Lord and nobody restored the ways of the Lord like he did. So we've got our list. That's what you have to learn in Bible college. You have to memorize it. Good kings, bad kings. But what we don't do a good job of teaching. You guys with me? Okay. What we don't do a good job of teaching is that there are moments in even the good king's lives when they make tragic mistakes. Now, some like David fell greatly, but boy, they repented greatly. If you have trouble with something in your life and you really want to know how to repent, read Psalm 51. David said, Lord, I, I, I was conceived in sin. Lord, everything about my life is, is broken without you. Lord, don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Lord, according to your tender mercies, according to your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. And boy, you read Psalm 51. I, when I read it, I, I find myself confessing sins I've never even thought of. David introduced us to the joy of true confession and of coming clean. But there are others that were good kings that made the mistake of making mistakes and not really going back to the table and clearing it out. And it's, it's a, it becomes something where vile things can grow. Ramona and I were new parents. Jeremy was probably a year and a half old. And we got in the car. We had to drive. The, the hospital we visited was probably 90 miles from the church. So we did a lot of time on the road. And um, there developed such a foul odor in the car. Um, I mean, it was, it was raunchy. We looked everywhere and I said, we got to find this. It's horrible. What if, what if it does something to Jeremy? What if it makes him grow another ear or, or something like that? And we vacuumed. We, had, we even went through a car wash, let them vacuum it out. And we bore it all the way to Mobile and it was just. And when we were heading back home, she said, listen, let, let's stop. We got to find this. This is horrible. Well, what we found out is that Jeremy had on the same overalls that he wore the day before. They weren't dirty, and we just put them back on him the next day. And what we didn't know at lunch is that, uh, that at that time is that lunch the day before, Jeremy loved pickles, and he had just taken a pickle and stuck it down in his pocket way down. And we're moving him around to remove him from the toxicity, not knowing it's in his pocket the whole time. You know what, loved ones? We can do the same kind of thing with our lives. And I'm here to tell you, this is not a message for those that are demonized. The two weeks are for that. We believe that we have the authority to cast out devils and we believe that we have the authority to crowd out devils and we believe we have the authority to end demonic oppression. It, this is not a lack of power. But loved ones, I'm not talking today. We will later, to next week, but I'm not talking today about just walking away from demonic activity. I'm talking about not hiding the pickle to start with. Because sometimes we open doors for the enemy. Sometimes we just give opportunity to the enemy 
as I said earlier. And I want you to know that we are moving into a new time. Uh, not that God's word changes or anything like that, but there are times of different emphasis in our lives and in our cultures. And I think we're moving into a time when we're going to see more and more spiritual warfare. We're going to see more and more overt attacks by the enemy. We're going to see more frontal assault. And we're going to see more and more uh, deliverance. We're going to see more and more healing. But it's not something that will be achieved by the way we've thought, by creating a show. Or, oh, I, I don't know how to say what I want to say without being offensive. Um, we, we, we are about to learn some pure power. We, we are about to learn that of what Paul meant when he said there are those that have a semblance of religion, a form of religion, but they deny the power. Now that could mean a lot of things. It could mean that somebody just replaces the gospel with a false gospel. I, I believe that's true. But I also think there comes a time when we have to go to the core of our very being and let God purify and open our eyes and give us revelation so that we walk in purity. I want to tell you there are two great weapons in spiritual warfare. Number one is humility. And number two is purity. Now by purity, I don't mean you've got to have a perfect life to be victorious in spiritual warfare. Uh, I, I believe God is able to take what we pray backwards and turn it around. I, I, our, our victory doesn't depend on us not making mistakes. We, we're going to make mistakes, but they, they need not be sin and they need not be terminal. But when we can understand that there is a new level that I believe God wants us to walk in, in which it opens the door for his power. Uh, Jesus said this, Satan has come. He said this just before he died. And his, his disciples were being battered. They, Jesus said, Satan has desired to have you that he might sift you like wheat. He said, you're going through an unbelievably uh, difficult shaking. And it's Satan's doing. But I prayed for you that your faith fail not. And then he, he says this, Satan has come to me. But he doesn't find anything in me. Loved ones, you're very quiet. Humor me. Do you understand what I'm saying? God is wanting to take everything out of us that the devil might be able to latch on to. I, I believe that that is a reality. You know, we, uh, in the early days of Pentecostal denominations forming a little over 100 years ago, there was the big argument, can, is there such a thing as sinless perfection? Can a person go without sinning? And some people said, yes, a person can go without sinning. And some people said, yes, if they get sanctified, they'll be at per, you know, uh, uh, perfection, sinless perfection. Other people said, no, it's something we grow into. I have come to the conclusion that there is such a thing as sinless perfection. And it's going to be ours just as soon as we die. But until then... We're in a battle and we need to understand I'm saved from the penalty of sin in the past. That's what happened when I gave my life to Jesus. One day I will be saved from the presence and even the possibility of sin. That's when I go to heaven. But right now I am, see that was done, that will be done, but there's something going on right now. We've talked about this numerous times. Right now I am being delivered from the power of sin in the presence. I, I'm, I'm not, I, I don't go through a, a, a ritual and come out perfect no matter how long and hard I try to live perfectly. It's, it's not gonna happen. I'm not giving you a license for sin. I'm just saying I, 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 we don't live there. We don't have the ability to live there. If I did live uh, 10 minutes in sinless perfection, I'd fall in minute 11 being so proud of not sinning in those first 10 minutes, you see. But we're in a battle. And I tell you this, 
I, I know it's taken me a while, but this is important. The power of next week is dependent on our understanding this week. When Jesus said, if your eye is single, your whole life is full of light. And you remember, we've talked about this, the, the idea of a single eye, we think that means, you know, like Popeye, you're just zeroed in on something focused. Well, there's a lie. You can, you can make a case for being focused, but I don't think you make it from this verse. Um, the word that was translated uh, single is the word unfolded. And it was the idea of the marketplace where someone bought a piece of cloth and a slick handed uh, cheat might show you a piece of cloth, how beautiful it is, but he keeps it folded so that a flaw is never seen. You think you're seeing all sides, but the flaw is never seen. But if you unfold it, there might be a hole in it, there might be a stain, there might be a flaw. And he said, if you can live your life unfolded, it doesn't say, Roy, if you can live your life perfectly, I'll be happy. Pat will be happy. It doesn't say that. This is what it says. It says, Roy, just always live your life in total honesty before me. I know the hole is there. I know the stain is there. I shouldn't have used Roy as an example because we know Roy doesn't have any stains. But we'll just maybe that's why I used him as we know it doesn't apply to it. But Pat, you can talk to me afterwards. But uh, I tell you, the key to spiritual the key to light is to say, I'm going to live my life not hiding anything. Now, I'm not talking about from people. There's some things you need to hide from people. There's some things that are, it's wisdom to hide them from people. You know, I don't think you need to tell your wife about every girl you ever kissed or, you know, I, I don't think that's wise, but I do want you to understand this. When it comes to the Lord, the more we try to tailor make our relationship to him to fit what we want, the more we open ourselves up to the stronghold of the enemy. So today is not about doing demonic stuff. Today is about keeping your life folded. And we want to look at Hezekiah just as an introduction. I know, I know we've got to hurry and I will hurry. Um, Hezekiah was the king of Judah. Now, Hezekiah um, was the king of Judah and the northern kingdom of Judah had been taken captive. Um, in the period from start to finish, it was about 726 to 701 BC, but really 722, 723, uh, right in there was the bulk of the time that the, the, the northern kingdom, the 10 tribes, were taken into captivity. Assyria conquered northern kingdom of Israel and even took several, uh, if I remember right, it was like 15 cities of Judah that were on the border with Israel, it took into captivity. And now they are back knocking at the door of Judah. Assyria says, we have conquered your neighbor, your sister nation, and, and boy, I tell you what, Sennacherib uh, and the Rabshakeh, they get very nasty. You know, uh, name one nation that has been able to survive us. They called on their gods too, but nothing happened. Don't you understand that God has sent us on this mission? And boy, you talk about psychological warfare. And, and Hezekiah knew they were outgunned, outnumbered. And Isaiah the prophet says, comes to him and says, this will not happen because you've prayed. This will not happen. They will not come into the city. They will not successfully lay siege to it. Not one arrow will be fired by the Assyrian army for the Lord will help you. And you know the story of 185,000 men of Assyria die between nightfall and sunrise, all killed by the angel of the Lord. You know, I, I know sometimes we wonder, do I have enough angels? You know, um, we, I've, I've heard people say that my child's guardian angel gets paid overtime, you know. That's the good thing about angels. It doesn't take many. 
if one can take out the Assyrian army, I'm okay with one. And God delivers them and, and, and this trauma sets the stage for something unbelievably difficult. Okay, now Jerusalem uh, has been under, been under siege like Samaria was, but God has delivered. So what has happened is that God has helped Hezekiah, but on top of that, Hezekiah is sick. He's got a terminal illness. And some of you know what it's like to try to manage a home, try to manage a business, try to handle a relationship when there's something terminal raging in your body or your spouse's body. And uh, it, was, it was just a time where the enemy seems to pile on. Anybody ever felt that way? Just pile on. And Isaiah the prophet comes and says, King, the Lord says, set your house in order. You're going to die. So he does this. He turns his face to the wall. He's bedridden, but he turns his face to the wall and he begins to cry out. And he says, Lord, you know how I've served you. You know how I've done right. And he had, he had done right. But um, his, prayer, his prayer to petition to God was, Lord, you know I've tried. I'm not perfect, but you know I've tried. And God was touched by his tears. We, we, we can't guess, well, was God just testing him or did he really turn the heart of God? I, I don't make claims to understanding God's intent. But at any rate, he told Isaiah to go back and give another word. And Isaiah spoke to his, his assistants. Isaiah said, tell the king that because of your humility, because of your tears, I'm adding 15 years to your life. Now, um, it's interesting because Hezekiah had no son and he needed a son for the line of David to continue. And that was going to happen during these 15 years. In fact, he had two sons. Uh, one we're pretty sure is his son. Um, and he says this, uh, God is giving you 15 years. He's going to spare you. And he said, in fact, in three days, you're going to go into the temple and worship God. And he told his, the king's assistants, he said, make a poultice out of figs. Now, that's why everybody ought to have a fig tree in their yard. Make a poultice out of figs, put the medicine on whatever spot was afflicted. And God used the medicine and God used his sovereign power to heal um, don't, don't be afraid of doctors. Don't be afraid of medicine. Don't feel that you're cheating the Lord uh, to, to take a, a medication. God is the God of healing in whatever form he wants to bring it. So uh, God, sure, he said, how will I know this? How can I know this? This man had been under attack literally and spiritually for months and he says, can you just give me a token? He said, do you want the, the sundial to go forward 15 degrees or to go backward 15 degrees? And he said, well, it goes forward 15 degrees anyway. Let, let it go back 15 degrees. And it may just be possible that God suspended the laws of the universe for 15 degrees worth of movement. I, I, I don't know. We don't know how he did it, but God did it and Hezekiah recovered. Now, here's the problem. He survived the attack of the lion only to be poisoned by the attack of the serpent. Everything's going great. Kingdom is flourishing. And Elijah walks in again. And he says to the king, who were those men that just left? And he said, uh, these were ambassadors from a far land of Babylon. And the Bible says that the king of Babylon had sent these emissaries with a gift, you know, our equivalent of coming in with flowers, and to congratulate the king on, on his recovery. And Isaiah, who had more insight into these matters than the prophet did, 
I mean, the king did. Isaiah says, what did you show them? And Hezekiah said, I showed them everything. I showed them the silver. I showed them the gold. I showed them the holy places. I showed them the army. He said, I just showed off Judah big time and all of our riches. And Isaiah understood what Hezekiah didn't understand. You thought they came to tell you how wonderful you are and they're glad you're still around, but you showed them all of the riches of the land. They are spies and they're going to come back and they're going to spoil the land. And then he went on and made this prophecy a little more detailed. He said, your daughters will serve as porcupines, concubines to the king of Babylon. Your men will be castrated and serve as eunuchs in the palace of the king. Your crops will be left for foreigners. Everything that you can imagine bad is going to happen. But the Lord is showing mercy and he will not allow it to happen in your lifetime. And Hezekiah's response was, not my babies, not, not my sons, not the people. Why couldn't he have prayed like David? Lord, this is my sin, not the people's sin. Don't lay this on them. Lay this on me. But the only response that he had was, well, at least God's judgment won't come on me in my lifetime. Now, I know there are some that are saying, well, at least he was praising God for at least a little mercy, or he was praising God that there was time to prepare. But you find the rest of the story, there was no preparation. There was nothing that would support those arguments. Here was a man that just said, well, thank God it won't happen in my time. Now, I want to, and I know we're going to go over just a few minutes. I will try to keep it to 12 minutes and let you out by 10 after. I will do my best. If not, go ahead and text somebody and tell them to text you a false emergency so you can slip out. I just want, I want to tell you five things that were pickles left in his pocket. I want to tell you five things that Hezekiah let slip in. I think they were all unintentional, but they sowed the seeds. He mortgaged the next generation's future because of these pickles. Number one, he fought with pride. When Isaiah said, what did you show them? Everything was, I showed them my, mine, me, mine. My, that's why Nebuchadnezzar would go insane for several months because even though he had a dream in which he was cut down in like a beast of the field and Daniel told him about it, Daniel said, oh, king, I wish this was about your enemies, not about you. I'd say, I'd say Daniel had dealt with his resentment because he was in the mess he was in, Daniel, because of this king. But he has enough respect for the king. He says, I wish this was about your enemies instead of you. He said, judgment's coming, king. But one day the king, after that, the king was looking out over his kingdom. He said, this is my kingdom. This is my Babylon, which my hands have made. This is my army, which I have forged together. And at that moment, the judgment of God fell seemingly out of nowhere. Because God was blessing Babylon because of Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But now judgment comes and he became insane for months. And pride, that's why the Bible tells us, Paul gave advice to Timothy and to Titus. He said, don't let church leaders be novices. Don't let them be inexperienced. Don't let them be too young or they will be lifted up with pride and fall into the condemnation of the devil. 
I want to tell you, loved ones, you are in the greatest danger. I am in the greatest danger, not in times of trouble. Man, I pray like it's nobody's business when I'm in trouble. My prayer life goes off the charts when I'm in trouble. The danger is when God delivers me from the trouble and I begin to relax. That was the same thing that happened, I believe, to Hezekiah. Number two, he misplaced his security. He, God wants us to have security, but he misplaced security. I want you to know he turned his back from the wall instead of to the wall. The humility and the, and the tears that brought him God's mercy is now forsaken. And he is coasting along with untold riches and blessing. And he put his place in the wrong security. Do you know that even godly people dealing with godly things can put their trust in the wrong thing? I'm, I'm, every denomination does it. Every church does it. I'm, I'm assembly of God. We're in assemblies of God congregation. You know, I hold credentials with the assemblies of God. I don't say this lightly, but we don't have to venture to another denomination to illustrate this. Um, I, you know, I've told you about my experience in January 88, where God set me free there in Fort Worth, the James Robinson Bible Conference. I did not understand the firestorm that was about to erupt in my life. In fact, it was this misplaced security that caused me to be in the mess I was in to start with. Um, I found out that the way most people in the assemblies of God, even pastors, the way most pastors dealt with it is they said it's always flesh. Christian can't be touched by demons. And they made a true statement, but they made it an umbrella with all kinds of ramifications, just like your umbrella is held up with those spokes. There were a lot of spokes in that umbrella that weren't true. And one of the things they said that was true is Christians can't be demon possessed. I, I agree. I don't think Christians can be demon possessed, but you've got to understand what the New Testament word translated possessed is. And I do believe there is possession, but I also believe that most of those words were to be demonized. It means to be bound or under the influence or the harassment of a demon. And you say, well, I, I just don't prove that. Give me one person that's been bound by a demon. I, I'm not asking you to raise your hand. I'm raising my hand. I, I wanted to die. I was living in hatred. I practiced a resignation speech every Sunday while I unlocked the church because I didn't want to be there and the people didn't want me to be there. I, I came home one day and I, I, Ramona said, what's wrong? I said, well, so-and-so and his whole family hates me. She said, you know better than that. How do you know that? I said, because they just told me. Yeah, I was, I was bound by bitterness. I was bound by unforgiveness. I was bound by, by lust. I was bound. But I, I don't mean I did things that I didn't, you know, I couldn't control. I wasn't possessed by the devil, but I had listened to him so long. I was on a rut in my soul and I had to be delivered. And I came back free. I came back free. I came back telling Ramona what happened. She cried and, and she looked at me, touched my face and said, who are you and what have you done with my husband? I began to give my testimony. I began to tell my friends. And you know what I found out over the next few years? Most of my preacher buddies that were in the shape I was in, because they had security of a demon can't touch me, they never got any kind of deliverance, never sought any kind of deliverance. Some of them became suicidal. Loved ones, I want to tell you, it's, we ought to have confidence that a demon can't take over our lives. But we ought not have the false security to think, if I traffic in darkness, I can do so with impunity. Nothing will happen to me. Any area of our life, we give over to darkness. Remember, the devil doesn't need an invitation. He needs an opportunity. Another thing, um, you know, in the assemblies of God, this, this affected me for my, the first 30 years of my life. We are on record pre-tribulational rapture. 
That's what our church believes, pre-tribulational rapture, which means before Antichrist comes, before tribulation starts, we're out of here. Okay, now you might not want to say amen or anything for the next two and a half minutes because it's bound to be at the wrong place. The fact of the matter is, in my opinion, there are three basic views, pre-tribulational rapture, mid-tribulational rapture, post-tribulational rapture. Pre means before anything happens, we're out of here. Mid means that it will get worse and worse and worse. And about the middle of that seven-year period, there's an evacuation of the church. Post just simply means when it all runs its course, Jesus will come, the dead will be raised, we will be changed if we're alive and remain. And depending on how you interpret maybe five, maybe six verses, you can make an almost ironclad case for each view, depending on how you handle those few verses. Well, you say, well, I, I, Pastor, you're not going to talk me out of this. I believe pre-trib rapture. That's fine. I hope you are right. I don't want to face crap. I don't want my children or grandchildren or great-grandchildren to go through anything that, that's like the, the great tribulation. I hope you're right. But I tell you what I grew up in. I grew up in a, whenever we would begin to get a burden for someone, instead of saying, I'm, I'm, I, Pastor, I'm, you know, I'm so worried about my unsaved loved ones or this, that, or the other, or maybe we ought to give more to missions. We need to do everything we can so that people don't go through that horrible period of tribulation. What inevitably came back was, hey, don't worry, we're not even going to be here. We're not going to be here. You know, I kept hearing it. We're going to be watching from the balcony or we're going to be watching from the mezzanine when Antichrist comes. We don't even need to concern ourselves with stuff like that. And loved ones, whether you are pre, mid, or post, I want you to understand if you have an eschatology that drives you away from the harvest, you've got a flawed eschatology. Our eschatology ought to be something that makes us realize the necessity of getting the job done and of winning the lost. You say, Pastor, what's your official position? My official position is when Jesus comes, I'm going. R.T. Kendall said, I know I've been right on my eschatology at least once because I believed everything at least once. Okay. Misplaced security. He turned away from the wall. Here's number three. He mistook assistance for approval. A lot of times we will interpret God helping us as God being pleased with everything. Have you ever gone to the doctor and he says, oh, great, you've, you've lost the 10 pounds. Wonderful. Let's you know, go home and, and eat a piece of cake today and drink a Pepsi to celebrate your 10-pound loss. And you say, yeah, yeah, I can do that. And he says, and then the next day, remember, we've got 10 more to go. See, God will do that. And, and we don't want to mistake his assistance for his approval. A lot of times, this is the bane of a lot of Pentecostal and charismatic churches. We think because we operate in giftings that we have God's approval. We mistake anointing for approval. Samson did the same thing. He played games all of his life. All of his life. We don't find him making a good decision once until the end of his life. <coughs> and the Bible says that he shook himself as before, but this time he didn't understand that the spirit had departed from him. Loved ones, I don't mean that Hezekiah was living in sin, but Hezekiah should have said, Lord, what got me in this place to start with? What brought me here to start with? Um, I was telling a group of elders one time, I, we, we would reach a plateau and then we'd drop down and we just, we, we couldn't break the plateau. And I said, I'm going to go to the Lord. I'm going to pray. And the Lord spoke to me and said, the way this church was formed, it was formed from a split of another church. And I know sometimes that has to happen, but it was not done the right way. I want you to lead the men to go back to this church and just apologize to them. Just tell them 
we, if we had it to do over again, we still feel the split was inevitable, but we would not have done it the way we did. We would have done better if we had it to do over, and we apologize for the things we've said and the way we did it. Now, I think except for one or two men, nobody was even there at that time. And none of them were in leadership. And I said, I really feel that's what we ought to do. I felt like it was a holy moment in the board meeting. I felt like it was a holy moment in the meeting. And um, a couple of spokesmen said, well-meaning, they said, no, absolutely not. You don't understand, Pastor, when we left that church, we had nothing. But God provided for us miraculously to give us a church and to we were provided for miraculously and God wouldn't do that if he wasn't for us and if we weren't pleasing him. He said, don't you know that? And I said, my brother, don't you know that the children of Israel spent 40 years in the wilderness receiving manna and water from the rock and the entire 40 years they were under the judgment of God? You can't mistake assistance for approval. Number four, he focused only on his generation. Now I think it's debatable why he said, well, at least it won't happen in my time, but I don't see any fruits of any of the noble explanations. I think this mighty King, this wonderful man of God, and it shows when he had the ambassadors from Babylon, my kingdom, my riches, my gold, my silver. And now it's what matters is what happens to me. Loved ones, he, he mortgaged the future of our country is what everyone could have said. He mortgaged the future of our religion. He mortgaged the future of our freedom by saying, well, as long as I'm not hurt, I see it too much. I see it too much in pastors. I see it too much in pastors. This younger generation doesn't even respect what we've done. Well, the younger generation may need to be taught some respect, but you need to let go of bitterness. You need to understand that it's just as important what God does with your great-grandchildren as it is what he did with your great-grandparents. And here's number five. He mistook relief for release. A lot of times we will get healed or we'll get delivered or we'll have a miracle of some sort uh, and, and we're better and we stop right there. We stop right there. Do you remember what Elisha said to the king? He said, uh, I'm about to leave, but I want to give you a prophetic blessing. And he said, uh, shoot an arrow. And then he said, take the remaining arrows and strike the ground. And the king just struck the ground once. And Elisha looked at him and said, Oh, you, you, uh, and maybe he picked up on the reading, another strike. And then he quits and Elijah keeps looking. He says, you, you should have understood. You should have struck the ground six or seven times because your victory over your enemies is going to be limited to the number of times you struck the ground. You stopped short. God was willing. God was willing to do more. But you are mistaking relief for release. Abraham, I'm going to destroy the city. Its stench has risen to the heavens. And Abraham said, what, what, if, what if we find 50? God said, I'll spare it for the 50. I'll spare it for the 40. I'll spare it for the 30. I'll spare it for the 20. Lord, what if we can find 10? I'll spare it for the 10. And Abraham had it calculated with his family. We got 10. There's 10 of us. 
like a politician counting votes. I know we got 10. And he stopped and he didn't find 10. What would have happened if he said, Lord, you've gone from 50 to 10. What if I just ask you for mercy and you just give the city more time? I, I have no reason to think God wouldn't say, all right, I'll do that. No, no, God had made up his mind for destruction. He would never change his mind. He did in Nineveh. I think he has in a lot of places. But loved ones, we've got to be careful. Let me give it to you as we leave today. Watch out for pride. Watch out that you don't misplace your trust, misplace security. Watch out that you don't mistake assistance for approval. Watch out that you don't focus only on this generation. Watch out that you don't mistake relief for release. You say, I thought we were going to talk about demons. We are. Because the more we traffic in demons, the more we open our life for their darkness. Now next week we're going to talk about how we can open the door and how we can close the door. Specific instances. But what we want to do today, you say, Pastor, what, what are you trying to get at? I'm trying to get you to turn back to the wall. I, I know you've been delivered and I know you've been helped, but I want you to go back to that place where you used to be. I'm, I'm saying, as Gordon Jensen used to sing, bring back the new again. Or if you're my generation, Andre Crouch, that used to sing, take me back to the place where I first believed you. Loved ones, it's not popular preaching anymore. I know we're in the kingdom, but it matters how we live in the kingdom. What did I tell you my daddy said? When you go to the prom, dance with the one who brung you. We are a church that was born in the fire. We are a church that lives in the fire. So why have we embraced so many things that are cold and lifeless? Turn back. This is what I want you to pray. I've been, I've been praying it every day for three weeks now. Lord, bring back the new again. Bring back the new again. I don't know of a time I've read more. I don't know of a time of scripture. I don't know of a time I've prayed more. I don't know of a time I've been more aware of the Lord's presence than right now. But I have a hunger that just says, take me back. Take me back, take me back. And I begun to realize that what God is saying is just get on your face, get up against the wall, get to that place where there's no recourse except me.